Welcome back, history fans. We have another exciting episode of history. What else? 1950s, a rockin' lesson. Doo-wop, 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 yeah. Alright, I'm totally getting excited about this new microphone that I have in recording a 1950s unit, so sorry, you'll have to bear with me on this one. So, anyhow, um, so let's, uh, let's start talking about the 50s here. So we kind of left off with Eisenhower becoming president during the Korean War, and that was in the 50s. And we kind of mentioned it, but we didn't really talk about his presidency other than how he ended the Korean War. So he wanted to get rid of, I'm sorry, part of his presidency, he wanted to get rid of this thing called creeping socialism. So, um, and this was part of the New Deal, at least as he saw it. Um, and also balanced budget and reduced government regulation of the economy. So basically he doesn't want to have too much government involvement is what it comes down to, but at the same time he wanted to increase unemployment benefits and um, social security. So he's kind of doing some of the good things of socialism and the Democrats, but also less government involvement, which is more Republican. So this was kind of called modern-day Republicanism or modern republicanism, and the definition time for you is conservative with money and liberal when it comes to human beings. So he's good with money, but also nice to people. Aww. So, anyhow, the federal debt during this time grew by 9% uh, to $291 billion. So, pretty high, but nowhere near the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of modern day. So, uh, during this time, our economic prosperity, our GNP, or Gross National Product, which is the total value of all final goods and services produced within a nation in a particular year, um, this number more than doubled, because from 45, it was $212 billion, and by 1960, $504 billion by the end of the 50s, now starting the 60s. So, all goods and services and stuff in America, we're, we're doing well, we're selling and buying a lot of stuff. So... During this time, about 60% of Americans were earning a middle-class income. And just to give you an idea of what middle-class meant back then, because it's a little different today, but back then in the 50s, if you made between $3,000 and $10,000 a year, that was considered kind of a middle-of-the-road income or middle-class. And so, for the most part, the 50s, it was a time of greater prosperity than people had ever seen before in America. We could buy stuff. And the reason stuff was so cheap and whatnot was because of automation in the workplace. Uh, So basically robots were producing stuff for us or making our jobs easier, so our productivity was up. We were able to produce mass amounts of goods, and therefore the prices went down, which means people could afford them a little bit easier. Same time, um, you know, we had the atomic bombs of the end of World War II, But now we have nuclear energy, which is providing cheap energy to thousands of people, or millions in that matter. So we're seeing this huge increase in the amount of output of electricity, so the price goes down because it's so cheap and easy to produce. So that's another one of our basic kind of costs of every American life that is going down. And so kind of jumping back with that automation here, this is a quote by Joe Glazer. I walked, walked, walked into the foreman's office to out what was that what i'm reading you word for word here i looked him in the eye and said what goes and this is the answer i got his eyes turned red then green then blue and it suddenly dawned on me 
there is a robot sitting in the seat where the foreman used to be. So this is talking from a worker's perspective that, oh my gosh, all of our you know employees, all of our bosses and everything are starting to turn into robots, which this is not good for the average day employee. We're going to be out of jobs. And this is even something, a modern day thing that we worry about is how robots are going to replace us, self-driving cars, those kind of things. So, um, anyhow, we're seeing a big progression of the sciences and so forth with automation and everything. Um, also, during this time, this is side notes, not actually like, you know, full on I'm going to be quizzing you on this. But this, remember, this is the same time period of, of atomic energy. So we have the anxieties that go with it, the whole duck and cover generation of looking out, you know, nuclear bombs could be happening at any given time. Uh, between 46 and 62, the United States exploded 217 nuclear weapons over the Pacific area and Nevada. So, um, you know, we have the space race, which we're going to do a separate unit on that, but that turn, that happened during the 50s, but we're going to put that into one. Um, NASA was formed, uh, National uh, Defense Education Act, all those kind of things. Uh, UFO sightings skyrocketed in the 50s. Uh, you have the War of the Worlds that came out. Um, you know, and, and the whole use of Hollywood using aliens uh, in movies and stuff was a metaphor for communists, which is part of our Red Scare unit, which we just got done with. But, you know, just to kind of give you an idea of some of the things going on. And um, one little last bit here before I move on. 51, uh, we have the first IBM mainframe computer. So, Go Technology, 1952, hydrogen bomb test. 1953, DNA structure discovered. 54, Salk vaccine tested for polio. Uh, FDR, sorry. Oh, um, 1957, uh, first commercial use of nuclear power plants, and that's what I just referred to a minute ago. NASA created 58 and 59 press conference of the first seven American astronauts now going into outer space, not to the moon just yet. We're going to have to wait another 10 years for that one. So anyhow, um, all this science technology and we're worried about jobs being replaced. So speaking of jobs and getting back to the notes here, blue-collar jobs. Maybe you hear about those today, but a blue-collar job is a manufacturing job. And these sadly decreased during this time. Then there's the other type of job, white-collar jobs. These are managers, professionals, and service jobs. All right, and those increased for the most part during this time. And then we have another one, which we don't hear as much, is pink-collar jobs. And traditionally filled by women, pink-collared, kind of sexist, I realize, but hey, it's history. Uh, nursing, teaching, retail sales, and low-level clerical jobs. Um, so. And also during this time, uh, union strength was up. And if you remember union, it's a collection of workers who band together to achieve common goals such as wages, hours, and working conditions. That's an old definition for you. Um, but anyhow, uh, we see the strength of unions going up. And, you know, so more and more people are joining for jobs and so forth. However, we see that they only go up for a time because they start getting weakened when the newspapers start reporting widespread corruption of the unions. And one act that was passed as a result of a lot of the stuff that was going on was the Landrum-Griffin Act. Um, and this banned ex-convicts from holding union office and required frequent elections and regulated union fund investments to make sure that people weren't doing anything bad with all that money. So now that people are making all this money with jobs and everything and unions are helping out with making sure employees get all the good benefits and all that good fun stuff, all right, people are making all this more money, so they have money 
and they can use that to move places. And this is um, fostering geographic mobility. 60 million people, which is a third of the U.S. population, started to live in suburbs. And a suburb are basically the outskirts of a city, but not quite the countryside. And that's still today, most people live either in a city or the suburbs. Rarely do people live in the country anymore. And a lot of these people living in the suburbs lived in planned communities. And these were basically entire neighborhoods that were designed like ahead of time, specifically with this in goal. It wasn't just like, oh, we build one house and then, oh, next year the new neighbors, they, they buy a plot of land and build a house. No, these were completely planned out ahead of time. And some companies even would build like cookie cutter houses where like every house just looked the same. Uh, old school movie reference, at least old school for most of you, uh, would be like Edward Scissorhands. Have you ever seen that movie? But yeah, the, the most famous of these cookie cutter houses was the Levitt Towns by the Levitt Company. Didn't see that one coming, did you? So everyone's moving to these suburbs. Well, and the movement to the suburbs was actually helped during this time by the Highway Act of 1956, which extended the nation's highway system, go figure, based on the kind of by, by the name of it. Um, not in the notes here, but just a little couple extra information for you. Uh, car registrations in 1945, we had 25 million registrations. By 1960, it was 60 million. Uh, so two-family cars doubled from 1951 to 1958. So people are not just owning one car, they're owning multiple cars. Um, and the, that Highway Act I told you about was the largest public works project in American history, which at a cost of $32 billion, and it was 41,000 miles of new highways that were built on top of the already existing ones. So just to kind of give you a little idea on that one. And um, we talked about that Levittown, um, you know, the whole American dream and whatnot. 1949, William Levitt produced 150 houses per week. And, you know, these houses were around 8000 or $60 a month with no down payment. So these were relatively cheap. Now, granted, um, you know, the strength of the dollar a little different back then versus it is now and whatnot, but it kind of gives you an idea um, of how much all that kind of cost and whatnot. All right, so now if you remember, uh, during the Great Depression, World War II, uh, people had to kind of like, times were rough and they weren't able to do a lot of the things they wanted to. They didn't want to be able to buy some of the things they wanted to and they had to put off starting a family. Well, now that life is good in the 1950s, it's baby time. We saw a huge population growth. So people started getting married at younger and younger ages and having bigger and bigger families. And so this time period became known as the baby boom. And sometimes you hear in the news recently here about the baby boomers and what's going on with them and whatnot. So um, uh, also just a little side note here about this uh, generation of having babies and so forth. Now, contrary to most popular belief of this time period, the number of working mothers actually increased in the 50s. Uh, now, granted, a lot of this was part time, but there was more women working during this time, um, you know, at least a little bit than we usually think of uh, during this time. And just a kind of a funny little statistic. 1957, so in the 50s, a baby was being born in America every seven seconds, which is just ridiculous to think about. All right. So um, moving on here just a little bit um, as I'm moving around here and jumping with my notes. I want to make sure I'm staying in order here for you. So it's this, you know, we have these, you know, bigger families and starting families earlier and we're getting living in the suburbs and we're getting cars and stuff like that. 
um, we're, we're seeing this culture of consumerism. Now, we talked about this in the 20s. Well, it's coming back here. People are encouraging us to buy, buy, buy. And a lot of what we're buying is kind of encouraging conformity. And so we, we start hearing this phrase, which was popular during the time, keep up with the Joneses. And it basically kind of translates to make sure that you had all the same modern conveniences as your neighbors. So it's like if your neighbor got a new TV, <laughs> guess you were going to get one too. And um, <laughs> kind of um, uh, an interesting note in history about this whole idea of bragging about, you know, the conveniences that we have in America took place in 1959. And this was the um, the kitchen debates, and this was 59 with Vice President Richard Nixon and the Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. And this was at an American National Expedition in Sokoliniki Park, Moscow. Um, and it was an American-style house was set up to show what the average American could afford. So, you know, the two of them are at this exhibit, and they started an impromptu debate about who had better kitchens, kitchen appliances, the United States or the Soviets. And so, you know, just kind of a, a goofy thing to debate on. But you remember, it's the Cold War. We can't physically fight, so we have to fight with being more awesome than them. And we were and are because we're America. So, anyhow, something kind of interesting there. So... Um, during this time of keeping up the Joneses and consumerism and, and all this stuff, um, you know, people have more free time to buy this stuff, but they also have free time for social activities such as PTAs, also known as parent-teacher associations, uh, scouting, little league sports, and religious activities all were on the up and up during this time. All right, and um, so another kind of social activity was watching TV. So, um, you know, a lot of a lot of families would gather around to watch different TV programs and stuff. And by the end of the 50s, 46 million households owned at least one TV. And, you know, you think about it today, how many TVs each house has or how much a community has. About everyone has a TV or can even watch TV on their phones or tablets or iPads and all those good fun things. So, uh, and TV advertising influenced consumer habits during this time, big time. And businesses would sometimes sponsor an entire show. You would have General Electric Theater or Kraft Television Theater. And the viewers would often connect the program with a company and its products. We were very impressionable. Not that we still are. So in a lot of the TV shows, the popular ones were sporting events, obviously, still are today. Quiz shows. However, some of them were kind of rigged. The Charles Van Dorn, a Columbia University professor, was given answers because producers hoped popular con uh, contestants um, would drive ratings. So, um, you know, some of that stuff does still go on today. Um, situation comedies, um, some of the biggest ones, I Love Lucy uh, and Amos and Andy were two of the big ones here. And Amos and Andy is kind of an interesting one because it was a comedy about African-American urban life. And it originally started off as a radio show that was performed by two Caucasians, which is kind of interesting. And when the show went to TV, two African-Americans took up the roles, but it was very highly stereotyped in the NAACP National um, Association for the Advancement of Colored People protested and it was eventually taken off the air and even banned from reruns. 
Now, a lot of the shows that were from this time period you can see on a on like TV Land um, and some of those other ones um, you know that would show. And you would see the Ozzie and Harriet show, Leave It to Beaver, the Donna Reed show, Father Knows Best. Those are all kind of big ones from this time period. All right. Um, now we've talked about the families and like kind of family life and you know babies and all that stuff. But what about the teenagers? Because we gotta stay hip, you know. Um, parents were concerned that pop culture of the time uh, would influence teenagers in a negative way, uh, and because you know it kind of seemed that leisure activities often glamorized rebellion. Uh, such movies as Rebel Without a Cause, The Wild One, and others just like that. And then you get magazines like Mad Magazine, which made fun of everything associated with the American way of life, and you even saw some you know writers like actual like book writers and so forth not just magazine um that would kind of challenge the way that the middle light middle class life like you know just oh everyone's conforming and stuff oh you're such a conformist and these people that challenge these writers that challenge this way of life were called the beats so um and wouldn't you know it a way for these teenagers to escape conformity was with the new music of the time rock and roll and uh, this music that kind of reworked rhythm and blues, um, and this was a popular style among African Americans, and you know it started to kind of go a little bit more mainstream as in every part of America, and it was actually the whole phrase rock and roll was coined by Alan Freed, a disc jockey, um, who came up with the, I, the name rock and roll, at least he's credited with it, and that was in 1951. And all of rock and roll really didn't kind of go like nationwide until one person the king Elvis Presley who was born in 1935 to a uh, family I'm sorry in Tupelo Mississippi and his first major record was in 1954 and it was one of the uh, he was one of the biggest stars by 1955 and he had a, a kind of a new sound to him, or at least for most people it was a new sound, and he had this amazing stage presence, and just he was just very much an entertainer. And, um, you know, not everyone liked this. Um, the Ed Sullivan Show felt that his hip movement, he was fully dressed, mind you, but the way he moved his hips was too sexual, and they would not show him on the Ed Shul- Sullivan Show from the waist down. And, you know, a lot of people feared that this rock and roll would promote antisocial behavior. Other people just dismissed it as gibberish, you know, saying that some of the lyrics uh, included made-up words like yakety yak and wumgush, which translates to nonsense, which makes sense. Um, So just to give you an idea of the time period that we're talking about with these rock and roll, I guess. All right, so um, now... All of this kind of rock and roll movement and, you know, the, the this new culture and everything that follows, um, it actually kind of helps to set us up for our next unit, which is kind of a civil rights movement. Because rock and roll, as we said, traditionally started off as African-American, um, is kind of bringing African-American stars and so forth and, you know, music stars and everything into, you know, mainstream culture. 
And this really kind of challenges racial segregation, which was going on during this time, because African-American musicians, um, you know, were becoming very popular, but in some areas may not be able to enjoy the same rights as uh, other performers. So some of these uh, musicians at the time, Little Richard, um, Chuck Berry, and Fats Domino, and these were huge influences on rock and roll, popular among many teenagers and of all backgrounds and stuff. Well, that's going to help to kind of push for some change coming up here in our next unit, which we're going to be talking about civil rights and women's rights and so forth. Um, so social changes are on the horizon. So we're going to stop there for today, and we'll have another podcast coming at you soon. Thanks so much, and have a great time.